This morning we're going to be thinking about the nature of, of trials and sufferings. And uh, one thing I don't like about trials and suffering is that it kind of completely conflicts with two things I really like, which are control and comfort. I don't know about you, but I, I don't like to be out of control and I don't like to be uncomfortable. And yet I find that trials constantly challenge that. And have you ever noticed that how when you face these kinds of difficult experiences, these trials that cause you to suffer either sort of a, a low-grade fever or something that uh, might actually be lethal, that in those moments, those experiences can actually start to challenge the way that you look at God and even shape it. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, in fact, I have often found myself amidst suffering uh, challenged with questions that really are begging me to ask whether or not I can trust God today or on that last day. And I believe that's the exact thing that we're going to find in our text this morning. And it reminded me of a book that I read some 15 years ago by a guy named John Sanders. And the name of the book is The God Who Risks. Now, I don't want to bog you down in like the theology of the book. Um, the book basically is a book that says that we can't really trust that God knows the future, uh, because that would uh, actually not make sense with all the suffering that we see around us. Instead, what he says is, is that God is actually just as surprised as you are whenever bad things happen to good people. Uh, now, that obviously has a lot of problems with it, but that's not really what I focus on this morning. Uh, I think the sermon will do that. But what I would like to highlight is, is this one reality, and that's the way the book begins. It, it's shocking, really. He begins with a, a personal story that set him off on this new journey to create a theology about God that was more palatable for him. And he begins with this really tragic story about how when he was younger, he came home to discover that his brother, uh, Dick, had been uh, run over by an 18-wheeler. And he literally found his body there. And it was in that moment that he was shocked and he began to ask hard questions about God and who he was from his suffering. And, and from that suffering, he cried out to God, God, why did you kill my brother? Why did you do this? Well, later he, he shares other stories of people that he counseled as a pastor through tragedies. And, and it was in that that he actually began to understand that he had a different view of God that had been shaped by these tragedies that really helped him worship God, he thought, better. And that was that God didn't know what was going to happen in that moment, and he was just as shocked as we were. Well, this morning, what I think we're going to see is, as we look back in our Hopeful Exiles series in 1 Peter 6, 9, it's that Peter is going to show us that as we face these grief-inducing trials and tragedies of this life, we ought to, as believers, discover that they are actually resulting in a confident joy in a certain future. In other words, we are not questioning whether or not God really does have our futures in his hand. Not only that he knows it, but he's actually bringing it to pass. That's what Peter tells us is the truth about the nature of trials in the hand of our God. Now, if you're just joining us, Peter's writing here to a group that's mostly uh, Gentile Christians in this Roman area of Asia Minor. They are facing a variety of trials for their faith in Jesus, ranging from everything from daily experiences of social alienation uh, to the occasional and sporadic political persecution that left them feeling like aliens and exiles in their own homes. 
They once were part of the people, but they, they followed Christ, and now they felt like aliens in the homes that they had always known. And in verse 6, you'll notice this morning that it begins with this little phrase, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Now, this little phrase, I believe, is important this morning. It's an important phrase because it is pointing back to verses 3 to 5. And you'll remember in verses 3 to 5 that we got this grand vision from Peter that he gives to these Christians, telling them that they feel like exiles because of the new birth. That they were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit to a confident hope of a future home with God, who is guarding them through faith for the return of Jesus Christ. And so they, were, they should be excited and encouraged to know that the reason they feel like they aren't home is because they're not home yet. A home is coming. But here you'll notice that they are rejoicing over the future that awaits. And that makes sense. But here in this you rejoice actually transitions us as well. From those verses to verses 6 to 9 that we're looking at this morning. And, and this transition is somewhat startling. Because here what we find is, is that this reality in verses 6 to 9 really feels more normal for us. It's the kind of trials that we face every day. And I think that what Peter is trying to do is he's trying to answer an important question. If God really is keeping me by faith for the last day, like he said in verse 5, then why isn't he protecting me from the various griefs of this life today? Why is that? Well, we're going to see that this morning, and what we're going to find is our, our big idea, our big idea is this, if you're taking notes, a great thing to write down, it is that God mingles future joy with present griefs to expose a genuine faith ready to see Jesus face to face. Let me say it again, God mingles future joy with present griefs to expose a genuine faith ready to see Jesus face to face. That's how God is working through our trials in, in these verses. Now first, we're going to notice that being kept by faith for the last day does not mean you will not suffer today. So let's go ahead and read our text and we'll then notice these things. So here's what First Peter 1, 6-9 says says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So let's jump into this text and and see what it is that God has for us this morning. As we do that, why don't we pray and ask for God's help? Father, this morning as we come before you, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us afresh. Father, I'm sure there are many in this room right now who are experiencing various trials and griefs that need to hear a word from you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak new life and joy into us this morning by the power of your spirit. God, we ask that you do this for the glory of your name, and it's your name alone we pray. 
Amen. Well, the first thing, again, that we see here in verse 6 is that being kept by faith for the last day does not mean that you will not suffer today. Now, I don't know about you and how your life goes day by day, but I'm wondering, do you, do you ever get tired of waiting for the return of Jesus Christ? Anybody here get tired of that? Like, let me tell you, there are all kinds of things in this life that help me get tired of waiting. Uh, in fact, like this last Friday, I waited in the kids' pickup line for 30 minutes to pick up my kids. And every bit of that time, I was doing eschatological meditations on when is Jesus going to get back and fix this stuff. But we know that there are other things, right, that, that aren't as minor as waiting in a pickup line that can actually exacerbate that, that longing for Christ to get back. And as we do that, I, I think that there are many Christians that with you grow weary on waiting for Jesus' return. And the, the, the trials of this life only make that worse. But notice here how quickly Peter downshifts from their last day hope to the, the trials of today or right now. Uh, notice in verse 6, again. Verse 6, you, you remember he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, Remember, Peter has just shown us the last day is glorious. But he says today is grievous, right? It's full of grief. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear words that sound like opposites or conflict with one another, like oxymorons, like that usually catches my attention. And for some reason, when I read rejoicing and suffering side by side, like that somewhat startles me. I mean, it seems like a, a contradictory sort of uh, amalgamation of two terms that should be sort of fighting with one another. Now, we, we see oxymorons like this all the time, right? I mean, you, you've heard this, right? So you've heard somebody say, like, act naturally, like, but, but if I'm acting, then, like, that's not natural, even though I'm trying to be natural, right? Or, or maybe you've heard of someone who said something like, good grief. It's like, well, wait a minute, grief's not good. Or what about Microsoft works? I mean, if anybody has a Microsoft computer, you know that Microsoft never works. And so you've got, yeah, I love Apple. So um, you've noticed, though, that we constantly use phrases like this that just catch our attention. How do these things fit together? But catch this. I believe our difficulty with putting rejoicing and grieving together like this actually hits closer to home. It's not just the lexicon that gives us trouble, right? It's our experience, We know, all of us, what grief feels like. It's the human experience. And I don't know about you, but my natural impulse, whenever I find myself amidst the griefs and trials of this life, it is not for me to say, well, let me just drop and praise God right now because this is awesome. That's not my experience. In fact, it's actually usually much the opposite of that. See, most of us do not respond this way. Not naturally. But Peter's not just talking about trials that end in martyrdom either here. So we just need to to wrap our mind around that. He's not just talking about some kind of sufferings and trials that are for special super-Christians not like you and me. He's actually talking about the kind of grief and trials that we're exposed to day by day. In fact, if you know life, then you know that trials come in all kinds of packages. And the Bible speaks of this. You know, I I can name a few just right now. I mean, one uh, way that trials come is as a consequence of our sins and sinful desires. Anybody ever faced those trials? The Lord is doing a marvelous work here. 
You know the trial of, of sin and, and sinful desire, don't you? The, the kind of thing that Paul speaks about in 1 Timothy 6, 9, where he is talking about the man that has given himself over to an, an inordinate desire for money. And that money becomes his God and leads him away from the true God. In fact, trials can become even more significant as we continue to choose sin, can't they? You've, you've probably noticed that. Like maybe you had a sin that you thought you had control over and then before you, you noticed, you found out that that sin actually seemed like it had an upper hand on you. That though you have victory in Christ, the Bible tells us that clearly in Romans 8, you felt like more of a captive to your sin. You know, I talked to someone who was a professing Christian just uh, recently who um, told me that, that they were kind of going to do what they wanted to do. And they, did, they knew that it was against the word of God. But they couldn't believe that God would not want them to be happy. And if, if that didn't work, they knew that they could always eventually repent and God would forgive them. And I had to tell this Christian that they really underestimated the kind of joy that they were giving up and following their own plans. They under, underestimated God and they overestimated themselves and their ability to just choose to repent and turn to God and seek forgiveness at any time they wanted. See, repentance is actually a grace that comes from God. And if you think that you can presume on the grace of God, then you have not read the Bible. So if you think that you can make God out to be a fool by living in your own way and just saying like, I will repent when I want to be, you are not promised another day that you'll have for repentance. And you're not even promised that your heart will be given the ability to turn to God and respond to his grace in the way that you need to. Or maybe you are continuing to face trials in your marriage, with your kids. Maybe you're in extreme debt because of past sins and you're seeking to be obedient to Christ but you feel the trial of obeying Christ as you feel like you have this debt of sin from the past and so often we would rather bend God around our bent desires than for us to be faithful and seek his face to help us bend our desires around him but not only are we finding ourselves in trials because of sin and sinful desires uh, we, we also find that trials can come from persecutions for seeking to follow Jesus, like the, the fiery trials that Peter speaks about in 1 Peter 4.12, or those faced by the apostles and the other Christians throughout Acts. You know, th those can range from social alienation to political persecution. In fact, I recently had a friend who decided to marry a godly Christian woman, and in doing so, his family wrote him off and he's been alienated by his family because he sought to obey Christ and marrying a woman that loves Jesus. And some of you probably have been censored at work for sharing the gospel or maybe refusing to support some agenda that you know is in direct conflict with the gospel, maybe over issues like human identity and sexuality. And you felt that low-grade social alienation and pressure that might heat up. And then there are also, thirdly, trials that simply come as a result of living in a fallen world. I mean, our world is obviously broken by the fall, and our bodies are wasting away with MS, cancer, migraines, age, etc. And even hurricanes and tsunamis are wiping out islands and taking countless lives. There is suffering all around us that is actually just part of being in a fallen world. And many experience, and my experience is, that the various trials 
Catch this, that we face day by day. Have you noticed that they don't tend to make appointments? And they don't tend to show up on time when you're ready? And I also find that the kinds of various trials that come after me are pack animals. They don't come by themselves. They usually come in at least threes. Have you noticed that? It's like something hits and then you're like, how am I going to catch up? And then something hits again before you've like caught up. And then you get hit again and you're like, I almost feel like somebody's trying to tell me something. But you'll notice three things briefly about this verse, verse 6, and what it says about our trials. First, notice that little phrase, for a little while. Now, you might be thinking that Peter must not be talking about my trials because they've been here for a long while, right? Like, these are not the little while kind of struggles that he's talking about. And that might be true from this side of eternity. This side of eternity, they seem very long. But afflictions become light and momentary. Catch me. They become light and momentary from another perspective. From the perspective of the eternal weight of glory that awaits us at the return of Jesus. If our perspective is shifted to where Christ is, then what happens is our scales begin to become recalibrated so that the sufferings of this life no longer weigh the same amount that they would apart from the weight of glory that awaits us. Not only that, second, notice that he says that trials are necessary. Now, you might not have seen this, but you notice that it says, if necessary, which is actually a declaration that it is necessary. In fact, Tom Schreiner, commentator, he explains this, if necessary, and says that it communicates that trials are not the experience of fate or impersonal forces of nature. It's not luck, right? But the will of God for believers, This is not good luck, bad luck. This is God himself who is at work in their lives. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, But for now, notice third, that Christians with genuine faith will be grieved by all kinds of trials. Let me say that again. Christians who have true and deep faith, real true faith, will experience trials. You know, one thing I think is really important for us as believers is to know that we are what we are promised and know what we are not. It's also to have realistic expectations of what it looks like to be a believer. And maybe this morning uh, you are surprised to know that becoming a believer actually does not promise that you will not face difficulties and trials in this life. In fact, sometimes those who follow Jesus experience greater persecution. In other words, these grievous trials that have come they are due to sin persecution or the fall but they don't mean that God is not guarding you by faith that that is what I think Peter wants us to see now I just want to ask you a question this morning what does your heart tend to do whenever you face persecutions or hard things do you begin to question whether or not God loves you because you can't imagine him letting you go through experience x if he loves you Or do you begin to question whether or not God is in control? Because you can't imagine an all-powerful and all-good God allowing you to experience why if he really was sovereign as he says. Well, here's why I think this is important when we start to ask these questions. Um, By way of illustration, I don't know if y'all have seen some of these facial editing uh, deals that you can use, these apps you can use on your phone that actually help you make your Instagram and Facebook pictures look better. 
Now, I obviously don't use those, uh, but some people do. And and when they do, you know, they use them to really give the best version of themselves, the version that they want people to see. Now, sometimes uh, people use, I believe, this kind of idea with God, right? They use their sort of theological snapseed sort of editor, and they, they focus on God, and they begin to try to fix those things that they see as blemishes, things that actually deny the goodness and the greatness and the power of God. They hide the things that they don't know how to explain, and in doing so, they reimagine a God that is not the God of the Bible, I think that in our trials, we need to be especially careful that we are not reimagining God as someone who he is not and start to say things about God that are clearly not true. In fact, Jerry Bridges has a great quote uh, in one of his many books where he says, God's sovereignty over people does not mean that we do not experience pain and suffering. It means that God is in control of our pain and suffering and that he has in mind a beneficial purpose for it. There is no such thing as, as pain without a purpose For the child of God. In other words, we will experience pain, but here's this point. There's a purpose to that pain. It's not meaningless and purposeless as some people might believe. In fact, I wonder if Peter influenced Jerry Bridges' thoughts on this here in verse 7. Because notice here in verse 7 that Peter understands trials as tests that reveal the true nature of something. So second, notice that trials are God's test to reveal genuine faith ready to see Jesus face to face. Trials are God's test to reveal genuine faith, like that faith that we read about in verse 5, that is ready to see Jesus face to face. Now, you'll, you'll notice here that verse 7 begins with, so that. Now, that so that expresses the purpose of those grievous trials that he spoke about in verse 6. So look at what Peter says here. He says, so that... The genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says trials are tests that show the genuineness of our faith. See, Peter is comparing the way that fire tests the genuineness of gold with the way that trials test the genuineness of your faith. Whether or not It is a God-born faith that is guarding us, or it is something else. Now, I know that every analogy breaks down, and Peter actually is highlighting a couple of ways that he expects this analogy to play out. First, you'll notice that he highlights the reality that gold is valuable, precious, but faith is more valuable. Of course, I think this is in the eyes of God and God's people, but This is because, second, gold is part of this perishable world that is passing away, but faith leads to an imperishable, eternal life. Now, there's a third implicit point of comparison here between the gold and faith, uh, which we see picked up elsewhere, which is that the fires of trials actually purify our faith in the same way that fire purifies gold. Now, that's why we have uh, the fiery trials that continue to come at us, purifying us, right? From one degree of glory to the next, trials are shaping us more into the image of Christ. That's the third reason that we have trials. We're trying to get to that 24-carat status of, of Jesus, right? That only happens when he returns, when we fully look like him. So trials pure, purify and prove those who have genuine faith that promises an imperishable future. Now, just take note. 
rightly assessing the authenticity of gold could be a matter of life and death. It's important, historically, to make sure that you have real gold and that you haven't mistaken it for something that is not. See, trading for what is valuable, trading what is valuable for what is worthless could leave you in ruin. And many have done this with fool's gold, right? You've all seen fool's gold that looks so much like gold. In fact, in the 16th century, there was a guy by the name of Sir Martin Frobisher. He was an English pirate. Anybody here like pirates? Like to read about them, not meet them, right? And so we have uh, this pirate guy who actually is out discovering stuff, and he, he happens upon an island in Canada, and he finds this glittery substance that he thinks is gold, and he goes back and he tells everybody about it, gets some money, comes back, and, and uses it to build this whole business of, of mining out this gold substance, and he sends back like 20 tons of it, and then comes back, and the queen wants some, and he sends back 14 tons of it, and later they tested it and found out that it was actually fool's gold. All of that effort, giving his life to this pursuit, And in the end, they actually ended up turning it into gravel for the streets. What an end to this guy and the hopes that he had, all built upon fool's gold. I'm sure he lost some relationships on that deal as well. But don't miss what Peter's doing here. He's actually flipping the logic of suffering on its head for believers. Instead of interpreting trials as an enemy of faith, or some kind of evidence that God is absent, Peter sees them as an instrument of God. God is using these sufferings to bring about his purposes. Now, let me just ask you this. Who's sending these trials, according to our text? God is. Not only that, did you see that it's the tested genuineness that means authentic faith will be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus? He's speaking about the future return of Jesus Christ. And he's saying as these afflictions heat up, it is showing that this is the kind of authentic faith that is ready for the return of Christ. They're ready to see Jesus face to face. Now, there are two critical realities about the nature of the sufferings of this life for Christians here in this verse. A couple things that we just don't need to miss as we are going through this. And the first is this. God sees and remembers every one of our griefs. God sees and remembers every one of our griefs. See, every suffering will result in praise and glory and honor when you see Jesus face to face. Every one. I mean, what a, what a promise, right? That, that you know that every suffering that you have faced, that you have not understood, one thing that you can trust is that it has a, transi- a transitory weight that, 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 that will be translated in heaven when you come before Christ. That will translate from suffering and grief into glory and honor and praise. Now, I think that this is at least speaking of the nature of reward that comes to the believer who has been faithful through trials and tribulations. But it then redounds to the glory of Christ and to God, the power of the Spirit. I mean, what an amazing promise. In fact, commentator Edmund Clowney, reading this, said, Our trials are never forgotten by the Lord. Catch this, this is beautiful. He keeps his tears in his bottle. He keeps the tears of the wounded saint in his bottle. Now you might be wondering, where did he get that from? Well, I think he got it from Psalm, Psalms 56, verse 8, where David says, You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? 
In other words, the psalmist David is being hunted down, being challenged for his faith. His friends, his family have turned on him. And in that moment, he says, God, I I know your character. And I know that what this means is that I don't have one tear that goes unnoticed by you and that you are keeping them in your bottle. I actually had a chance to go to Israel a, a few years back. And one of the things that they were selling in a lot of the antique stores were these ancient little tear bottles, bottles that saints of the past, uh, Old Testament folks, uh, uh, maybe early Christians would keep, and they would actually collect their tears in this bottle to remind them of the fact that amidst their intense and severe and sincere griefs, that God would not forget one of them. You just catch the beauty of that. They believe that every tear in that bottle was a promise, a promise that God was not only going to comfort and satisfy those, those sorrows that were, were in their hearts and that had come out through tears, but that he was actually going to actually translate those into spiritual gold, that they would resound to the praise and the honor and the glory of God at the return of Jesus Christ. And what a hopeful image. And brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to know that God promises us that there is no suffering that escapes his attention. As he guards us, he watches us. And he's not just watching us to keep us safe. He's watching us with the intended end of the glorification of us and him forever at the end of days. Our future is incredibly bright. And our sufferings actually will translate into something of value in the future according to God's word. See, there's an escalation that comes in the, faith, the face of Christ. Faithful sufferings aren't merely comforted, they're rewarded and redound to God's glory. But there's a second thing I think that's really important here as well, and that's this. It's that we are not promised that we will understand the immediate reason for the sufferings of this life. We're not promised that we'll understand the immediate reasons for why our our children die, why our marriages break down, why, why sin seems to have an upper hand in a way that we don't want it to. We're not always given a reason for why we, we struggle lifelong with depression. We're not always given those answers this side of Jesus returning. We, we just are promised here, not that there's an answer that we'll find some silver lining in the moment, but that in the end there is a promise that all things work together for our good and for our glory and the glory of God. Now I see a, a beautiful story that, that pictures this in the suffering of a saint. Many of you have probably heard about Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, her husband and, and her and, and a number of other families went to share the gospel with a group of people in the Amazon. And as they went, they went with the hopes of seeing those who were far from God be drawn near. But when they arrived, uh, they, they, sat, they sat down one night and her husband Jim sang with others, We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. And the very next day, he was speared to death leaving behind a widow and orphan along with many others. Now, what's interesting is during her day, a lot of people had this idea that if Christians suffered, that there was, also, there was always some kind of traceable silver lining that they could discover in the midst of their suffering, their trials and their tribulations, that there was something that God would sort of uh, show them that would make sense of everything. Well, she didn't see that. In fact, she wrote a book that helped sort of address this, and it really gave life an illustration. It was a novel that gave illustration to her experiences, and the name of this book was No Graven Image. 
And in this book, she tells, she tells the story of a, a lady named Margaret Sparhawk, a, an imaginary character that she created who had a desire to translate the Bible into the language of a people who did not have the Bible in their language. And so she, she set forth to do this. She gave her life to it, raised money for it, spent many years uh, in this process of getting ready. And uh, finally, she found one man, a guy named Pedro, who was going to help her translate the Bible in this language so that many, hopefully a million people, could come to Christ through her giving her life as a sacrifice to serving God. And she was thrilled. She was excited. She was excited about the prospect of what God was going to do. And it was one night when she went after praying to God a prayer of praise to see Pedro that she discovered that he had had a leg injury and that he was actually getting sick quickly. Things were going south. And his wife cried out, he's dying. Will you give him a shot of penicillin? Because she had a shot of penicillin. And so she gave it to him to save his life. And within minutes of giving him that that shot, he died. And his wife, Rosa, looked at her and said, you killed my husband. And in that moment, she sensed that everything that she had given her life to was finished, struggled even to find meaning behind what she had done. The book ends with a confused missionary who never gets her aha moment explaining that deep loss. But... Tim Keller shares this story, and he had a conversation with Elizabeth Elliot, and she says, you need to notice that the book really hinges on this one statement, where at the end she says, catch this, God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. But if on the other hand he was God, he had freed me. See, the No Graven Image title for this book described the way that she had a certain expectation of God. That he would always act like she thought he should. And that he was actually an accomplice to her plans. He was a counterfeit God of her own making. But the good news is that he was God and he had freed her. He had freed her from her imagination of who God ought to be. A God that she imagined is acting according to her plans so that she could actually worship God in spirit and in truth. Not a God that is finite like us that we can always understand, but a God that we can trust at the words that he has said. See, our sufferings reveal that we are not in control, God is. Or they show that our faith is not truly genuine. Do we have true faith or do we have fool's faith? I think that's what 1 Peter's asking us. But there's a third thing that we see here in verses 8 to 9, and that's this. Genuine faith already looks like the future. Genuine faith already looks like the future. Now, you'll notice in verses 8 to 9, they describe the already not yet reality that is revealed in the response of genuine faith to trials. There's an already not yet kind of response that we see here. It already looks like heaven, even though heaven's not fully here yet. See, they will see Jesus in the future, but they have not seen him yet. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says this, verses 8 to 9, here's what he says. Though you have not seen him, You love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, I know that you've probably heard the phrase, seeing is believing. Well, Peter says the exact opposite is happening here. 
You, you know, for many of these Christians, we know that though Peter actually saw Jesus face to face, most if not all of them that he writes to have not. And you can hear Peter's amazement as he writes this. They have not seen Jesus with their eyes. They haven't seen him, but, but they love him from their heart. And they do not see him now, but they believe in him. See, they possess a faith in and a love for Jesus that's not according to physical sight, but to spiritualize. Now, you'll remember that Peter's not talking about an ivory tower kind of joy that's sort of disconnected from the multifaceted sorrows that this world slings at you. He, he understood those. He experienced those. Now, he's describing a kind of joy that is as alien as they are. A joy that is described as inexpressible and filled with glory. It is inexpressible in that there are no earthly words to describe the kind of joy that they are experiencing because it is not an earthly kind of joy. But it is also filled with glory. Now, this glory is actually, I believe, connected back up to something that happens before it where he speaks of the glory that is going to come in verse 5 at the return of Jesus Christ. Or rather, verse 7, when Jesus shows up. See, the joy that comes to the Christian is coming from Christ, who is in heaven already. Blessing them from the treasury laid up for them and the not yet reality that awaits. They're already experiencing a, a, a taste of the joy that they long for in their griefs. And this is not an, a normal kind of this worldly joy. In fact, I think that last phrase, verse 9, even strengthens this idea of rejoicing and taking joy even in this moment. I take that, that participle. You notice it says obtaining or receiving as really providing the reason for uh, why they experience joy amid suffering. In other words, the way that I take this is uh, the ground of why they are able to take joy in verse 9. So I would actually translate verse 9 as something like this. Uh, you are experiencing this, this joy and this love, this otherworldly kind of experience because you are already obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are experiencing these things because you have genuine faith. So I would translate this something uh, like that. And Peter's saying that true Christians, not Navy SEAL style Christians, actually actual Christians are characterized by faith hope, and love amidst trials. That is something that, that defines and characterizes Christians. See, bitter trials produce sweet fruit of the Spirit and the lives of believers. Not microaggressions, anger, and bitterness, but faith, hope, and love. And as Tom Schreiner observes in his commentary, the love and joy of believers is rooted in the hope of eschatological salvation. So the future is visiting the present now, I, I've told you before that I once had a friend who told me that she really didn't want Jesus to come back yet. She didn't want him to come back yet because she said, I've got so many things that I want to do before he comes back. I really want to live. And I told her quickly that that overestimated the joy of this world and underestimated the joy of seeing Christ face to face. And I think that's all of us. Now, I need to grow in humility in the way that I, I deal with people. And I think I have since then. But, but the reality is, is that we really do need to estimate rightly the weight of glory and joy that awaits us when Christ shows up. 
And maybe this morning, you just need to recalibrate the way that you assess the value of that. Has the return of Jesus really begun to, to reshape and recast the way that you view this world and this life? Does it interpret and translate the griefs of this life into something that's meaningful or something that just doesn't make sense? But not only that, I believe the more that God matures us through trials, the more that we will sense the joy of this world that cannot compare with the joy that awaits us. And the more that we will long to see Jesus face to face. See, Peter doesn't command us to rejoice here simply. uh, Here, he simply says that this is what genuine faith looks like. He's not commanding joy. He's saying this is part of what it looks like to be a true believer. But when I read this, I have to ask some honest questions. Because I'm a real guy. Questions like, what do we do if we're not joyful amidst our trials and our griefs? Like, can a Christian really be sorrowful and struggle to have this kind of joy? My short answer is yes. Christians can suffer. They can grieve. And they can sometimes feel like grief is winning over the joy. In fact, the Bible, I believe, calls us elsewhere to fight for joy. And we are commanded elsewhere to to take joy and to rejoice all over the Bible. So I think we need a few observations about the nature of joy just to make sure that we don't leave here feeling like we are utter failures in the joy department and maybe not Christians. So here we go. A few things just to, to leave with as we go. First is this. We are not saved by joy, but to joy. We are not saved by joy, but to joy. An important distinction. I want you all to make sure you understand that. Here's what I mean. God does not love us because we were joyful enough. God's love for us right now is not because we've shown enough joy to satisfy him so that he continues to love us. That's not what the gospel says. You know, just last night I read a biography on the life of William Cowper. Now, William Cowper is that hymnist uh, who wrote God Moves in a Mysterious Way along with a number of other hymns. And Cowper, he actually struggled with severe depression to the point that he actually tried to take his life numerous times. Even in the midst of writing all of these glorious hymns, he struggled with wanting to live. In fact, there's this one story where his dad actually gave him a a book that gave a defense or an argument for suicide. And and what he wanted him to do is like to trace this guy's arguments for whether or not it was a legit claim. And his dad wanted him to be able to like understand it so he could refute it. But his dad was sorry to find that his son was like, the guy's got a point. I mean, that was the sorrowness of this guy's soul, right? And yet this man, as sad as he was, and as much as he struggled with life to the point that he even attempted suicide multiple times, one time broke the rope, and that's the only reason he lived through it. I would say it was the hand of God. But Cowper wrote a letter to his good friend John Newton, who was one of the happiest Christians that we find in church history. He pastored this man all of his days, even when he wasn't in the same church, about his depression, saying this, There is a mystery in my destruction, and in time it shall be explained. What he's saying is, is I don't know why I suffer like this and why a good God lets me do it, but here's what I do know. There is an explanation. And I will find it when I, I reach the heavenly gates and I see Christ face to face. But until then, I have no promises that I'll understand why the Lord has allowed this grievous thing to weigh on my soul. See, we might understand why joy seems so evasive to some. 
even to us in seasons. But in those moments, we must trust and hope in God. But second, I think that in this story, we we see something else, something that we see throughout the pages of the Bible. We need friends to help us seek our joy. Friends like John Newton. Every William Cowper needs a John Newton. And I'm guessing every John Newton needs a William Cowper, right? Somebody that brings the gravity of this world, but also cannot take their eyes off the return of Christ. Their friendship was what helped William Cowper through so many dark days. And I would say that we all need that same kind of relationship. And God gives those kinds of relations to us, mostly in the context of the local church. Where God has encouraged us to stir up one another towards love and good works and joy by gazing on the glory of God. Now, here's what I would say. If you want to fight for your joy and you're serious about it, then this time that we have together every week to hear the word preached and to sing together and to pray together and to hear God's word together and fellowship together, that ought to be absolutely significant and important and critical in our lives. And I think that when we treat church as something that's not that important, we believe that we are kind of able to live this life on our own, that we're not really needy for help to be joyful in Christ or to obey him, that we kind of can live autonomously and we don't need to live according to God's plan for us by living in a family together. That's not me. I I tend to not be joyful when left to myself and I need others to lift me up and to encourage me. I need a body of Christ to stifle me or or to um, stir me up towards love and good works. And I think all of us would be less lonely if we sought to increase the joy of those around us. In other words, have you ever thought about like when you do come to stir one another up at church on Sunday mornings? Like what is it that you're seeking to do? Like what's your mission when you show up on Sunday? Are you showing up to be a vacuous hole that absorbs all the joy for yourself? Sometimes I do that. Or are you showing up because you actually want to be an instrument used to enhance the joy of those around you? just think about it this morning like what's your purpose for being here is God using you and are you wanting to be used and do you realize that God wants to use you to stir those up around you towards joy in the Lord okay next step then what does that look like what do you do to make that happen do you actually talk to another person or do you say well if they didn't talk to me then well they failed Jesus failed Or is it, no, I've failed because God has created me for something more. He's made me to stir up other saints toward the glory of God. And if I didn't do that today, then I've done less than what God's called me to. And I want more. Or what about third? Killing sin in our lives. You've heard of people talk about people who are a killjoy. You know what's a killjoy? Like Satan and sin. Those are killjoys. Sin and sorrow go together uh, in a way that is not an oxymoron. Um, sin and sorrow are synonymous. If you are a sinner, you are sorrowful. And if you're not sorrowful now, you will be more than you know. In the same way, holiness goes together with happiness. If we're looking to be a happy, live a happy life, then we need to live a holy life, trusting that God really did tell us how to live in a way that is good for us and glorifying for him. So we need to be about the business of killing sin. As John Owen says, you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But fourth, we are commanded to rejoice. So we need to repent. We need to repent if our lives are not characterized by joy. And there are probably many of us today who need to repent of this. And I, I want to walk softly here because I know that some of you have tender consciences. Some of you are broken. 
Some of you are going through extreme suffering. And in that moment, you know, it's not like necessarily the best time or the way that you want somebody to come in and say, you know what, this is a great time to repent of not being joyful like God calls you to. But I think for individually, for us, we do need to be reminded that just as any other sin, we are called to, to rejoice in the Lord always. And that's written by, by Paul from a prison cell. And so we need to recognize that God created us for more than grief. This doesn't mean that it is sinful to be sorrowful, but that we don't grieve as those who have no hope, even over death. So grief will not rob God's children of their future. But God sends grief to kill the idols of our hearts and to increase our joy in Jesus. Grief reminds us, brothers and sisters, that we are aliens of this world, but citizens of heaven, so don't get too comfortable. And finally, fifth, not only that, the joy we need is a gift that comes only from God. In other words, the purpose of this message isn't for you guys to go home and, you know, get your Jordans out and lace them up real tight and say, I've got this. I can be more joyful. I can jump higher because I have the right shoes. Now, the message of the Bible, the message of the New Testament is that the joy that we are called to have is a gift that only comes from God. In fact, Galatians 5.22 tells us that joy is a fruit of the Spirit coming from Christ. Did you catch that? You can't dig down deep in yourself, of yourself, and find the joy that the Bible calls you to. Now, the only place that you can find the joy that you are called to have is in Christ. Now, here's what that practically means. If I want joy this morning, what I really ultimately need to do is to seek God on his own terms for that joy. I might be looking all kinds of other places for joy, right? All kinds of wrong places for joy. I don't need to go through those. We know where those are. But there's one right place to seek joy, and that is in the face of Jesus Christ. So what do we do if we need joy? We need to pray. We need to beg God that he would give us the joy that we need. And that doesn't mean that we might need to pray for just a week or a month. We might have to pray for a whole lifetime like William Cowper, who was completely dependent on God, knowing that he alone could give him the joy that was so evasive to him. You know, for some of us, we know that we need to look at the word of God more because we're not We need to see God in all of his glorious splendor so that we can take joy in him. Others of us need to encourage one another and be encouraged, but we need to seek God's means for the joy that only he can provide. That means we need to listen to God's voice in the Bible and to ask for joy in prayer. Let's pray together.